the main thing that I learned about conspiracy theory is that conspiracy theorists believe in a conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world is that it is actually chaotic. The truth is that it is not the Illuminati or the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray alien theory. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. The world is rudderless and we tend only to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 170 of Embrace the Void, where we are out to get you. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking about the intellectual dark web. So, let's get decoupling. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Chris Kavanaugh, a cognitive anthropologist and social scientist and co-host of the Decoding the Gurus podcast. Chris, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. (laughs) uh thanks for coming on i really appreciate you uh lending me your expertise for my little project here today this is going to be a bit of a weird different episode um i want to talk about kind of the state of the intellectual dark web post election and uh you are someone who i think is well versed in the dark web whispering world at this point do you want to maybe start by explaining to folks how you came to be so blessed to be well versed in the intellectual dark web's doings yeah uh, so maybe some of the people i had a longer standing interest in like sam harris and whatnot not as a non-critical like fanboy but i find their output kind of interesting but when the intellectual dark web came around it i would consider myself center left person who is critical of some of the excesses on the far left and is in academia and that's kind of the position that the idw presents itself as or lots of the figures in the idw the they present themselves Mm -hmm. in, in coming from that space and so initially i was probably enthusiastic about that general you know that general effort but but subsequently, mm-hmm. I've I've become generally extremely skeptical of it because I find them more to be undermining and engaging in conspiracism and various other things. And uh, yeah, so it's I I would consider myself like sympathetic to some of the critiques, but as, as a result, I'm very unsympathetic to the way that they. Uh, themselves engage in excesses and kind of rhetorical style arguments. 
That's it's funny because when I first I think came across you and your co-host Matt from Decoding the Gurus, I sort of experienced both of y'all as being kind of centrist and so sympathetic and like you said sympathetic to those kind of critiques of social justice warrior overreach and i have subsequently experienced what seems to be a radicalizing on y'all's part with regard to these issues were there like specific sort of events that triggered for you that kind of radicalizing uh, approach here well like what really put you off of the idw in this way well i'd say like that i would say that there are certainly people in the idw sphere as well who would agree with that assessment that like I'm radicalized and just hit them all pathologically. Mm-hmm. But I I wouldn't I wouldn't agree completely with that assessment because I still do agree with some of the criticisms and I would consider myself, you know, center left person. So the kind of rampant conspiracism and the degree of like demagoguery or the the like I, I probably the best example of it is James Lindsay right and uh mm-hmm. I know you've covered the sovereign nations and had various interactions with him but that trend from critic criticizing the woke social justice warrior whatever approach but then being completely blind or or in fact apologetic mm-hmm for the excesses on the right or for Trump or kind of downplaying that right-wing media, for example, exists. I I find that even where there are people in the IDW that I still think have something worthwhile to say, they tend to have very little worthwhile to say about the right or to ignore it. There's a couple of exceptions, but yeah, mm-hmm. the, I think it's the this the kind of disparity in approaches between the left and the right that I find most disconcerting. And then the level of vitriol of some of the accounts that are popular and, and people within the movement, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it it feels a lot like the, you know, not, not the alt-right in terms of the kind of Jew-hitting, far-right, racist side, but more the kind of Milo... I always get his name wrong. Like Yanop, I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> his name. Yeah, Milo and uh, like the the vice guy. What's the vice guy? Gavin McGinnis and or Gavin McGinnis. The, the McGinnis. Yeah, those those people. I I think the that a lot in the IDW sphere, you know, slide close to that area. Like uh, yeah. So that that's a long winded mm-hmm. way to answer that question. Yeah, no, and I'm sympathetic to that. And sort of in prepping for covering this, I did like a a dive back through all of these folks sort of Twitter timelines. And generally, I would say my experience for the most part reinforced uh, what you are describing here. Now, we should back up a little bit, I realize, because A, some folks may have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about the intellectual dark web at all, and other folks are critical of the idea that there is such a thing as the intellectual dark web. So I think it might be useful just for a second to talk about what we mean when we refer to this, if it is sort of a useful grouping. Um, Do you want to explain sort of how you classify? Because so for example, you put James Lindsay in the intellectual dark web, even though sort of the classic 
or the er text of the intellectual dark web which is a article by barry weiss um is does not include james Lindsay in our sort of rogues gallery here yeah so a lot of people seem very uncomfortable with the concept in part i think that's because the people who be, like tend to be set within that group themselves like to present themselves as iconoclastic and anti-tribal mm -hmm. so there's uh like a, a desire amongst the followers to also endorse that you know they're not just followers of some group identity but uh eric weinstein uh coined the term as he's fond to do as uh, mm -hmm. like neologism for group <laughs> of uh heterodox thinkers who were interacting and kind of threatening in it, like in within his narratives they're always threatening of the mainstream and uh coming mm -hmm. from kind of internet and alternative sources right so in in that respect it, i think the figures that were initially put into it were people that were interacting a lot online on podcasts or on youtube channels and showing up having conversations mm -hmm. about mainly anti-sjw type topics um right. and and so the Barry Weiss article that that made the concept more concrete to a wider audience put a whole list of people in, including, you know, Joe Rogan and Ian Hirsi-Ali um, and so on, uh, and excluded mm -hmm. some people that other people might include, like Jonathan Haidt um, or, or James Lindsay. But I, the way I view it is that the Barry Weiss article is picking out uh, a group of thinkers who share some core characteristics. And that that's essentially what she's saying, mm -hmm. right? And obviously, to some extent, they agreed because they all posed in bushes um, to, <laughs> to for the photo shoot <laughs> for that. Did. So they, they knew that they were uh, going to be featured in this article talking about the group. And um, the... But in my case, it's that I'm not so fixated on the Barry Weiss article. I see it more as a mm -hmm. like just a useful group category for a cluster of people who share a kind of uh, anti-social justice, critical of the far left uh, fixation, and mm -hmm. and in general see themselves as heterodox thinkers. So I I don't have this issue with family resemblance style categories like. This, this whole debate about whether the IDW exists or not completely parallels the debate in my own academic work about whether the concept religion is meaningful uh, mm -hmm. as a category mm -hmm. because there's so many you know di divergent uh, characteristics when you start digging into all the diverse things that are categorized as religion. But there again, I have the view that you can have a meaningful group identity and category that has a bunch of characteristics. Not everyone within the group shared those characteristics and groups in general feature members who are more paradigmatic or less so. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I don't have any issue with the fact that there's fuzzy boundaries or people moving in and out of the sphere. Um, but other people seem to take this as making the concept unworkable because, you know, if you have a concept that can include, can include Ben Shapiro and Sam Harris, uh and jonathan Haidt, what does it what does it mean um yeah yeah I, I find that critique confusing when put that way because part of the 
ethos of the IDW is that it's supposed to be a bunch of disparate thinkers who are coming together because they have some agreement, but not because they're all just coming from the left or something like that. So, like, it would be if you're if we're saying that they need to also be heterogeneous in all of those other kind of ways in order to qualify as a group, then it seems like they're it's an impossible for us to talk in any way about clusters of individuals who are like joining together from disparate sides of the sphere because i do think it is fair to say that like at least some of the people on this list are to some extent to from different angles i don't i don't know if i would say that anybody on this list is far left i don't think we have any like real genuine marxist representation in the intellectual dark web but you do have like varying degrees of liberal and libertarian as well as a bunch of right-wing people, I think. Yes, although I would say I just heard a day on Brett Weinstein's or Weinstein's podcast that he was describing himself as far left. Um, so mm. I I did not consent to that assessment, but he produced. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, I could be <laughs> wrong, but he self-identifies the um, as radical left, and and uh, Eric has a Eric Weinstein has appeared on. Ted Cruz's podcast with the title of Into the Mind of Progressives or something like that. So and, and works for Peter Thiel. So Yeah. yeah. Right. The so I'm just saying that I, I completely occur occur concur that the uh, far left <laughs> does not have much representation in the IDW, but some of them do kind of claim to position themselves there. But I yeah, I think their definitions are quite idiosyncratic. Yeah, it's possible that some of them are still pro some sorts of redistribution of wealth, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we get into. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like sort of like go through the list of individuals. Who would you say is like to you the core, like the paradigmatic figures, like you were saying, that you feel like make it worthwhile to talk about this cluster? Previously, so it's changed a bit over time, but I would have said at the time mm -hmm. of Barry Weiss's article, it would have been Sam Harris. Jordan Peterson, the Weinstein brothers, um, and Joe Joe Rogan's an odd one because he's mainly just a facilitator, but uh, you know of conversations. But uh, and Dave Rubin would have been in a similar role then, but but now I, I think Sam has uh, continued to distance himself from that group and mm -hmm. and jordan peterson has faded um because of his health issues so mm -hmm. so now i would say and and this may reflect my own bias but i think the weinsteins are at the center of the intellectual dark web and then you have uh people like just kind of within that network james Lindsay, the the grievance mm -hmm. studies people, uh, but mainly just James Lindsay in there. And then uh, a kind of menagerie of figures like kind of chomping around the edges, like Gad Saad and mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey Miller and so on. I, I tend to not think of Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt um, or even Michael Shermer to some extent as like core members because they, these are all people that have held the term at arm's length. And, and obviously, Quillette, all of the Quillette sphere, that, that became at one point the kind of uh, seen as the 
IDW mm-hmm. uh, mouthpiece or outlet. So a lot of the writers for there and Claire Lehman her, herself. Flagship. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so it's interesting that you, the way you've listed those some. So I want to go through this a little bit. First of all, you mentioned sort of Steven Pinker and um, Shermer and Height as being sort of at the edge of it. And I think that's very interesting because as I was going through all these folks' Twitters in order to sort of see what they were, you know, up to recently, essentially, um, those are three folks who I would say were de- like doing the least of what I would sort of think of as the um, IDW shtick, essentially. So, like, Jonathan Haidt was mostly, like, continuing to promote his persuasion model. And I actually want to talk about something. It's interesting to me that Jonathan Haidt is, if not in the intellectual dark web, certainly the preferred um, moral psychologist of the intellectual sure. dark web. Um, and it's weird to me because... His one of his key insights is that his persuasion model for moral arguments is that in order to get someone to listen to you, you have to first get on the good side of their feelings of the elephant before you can get the rider to do what you want it to. Mm. And I just think there's a weird, deep irony to the fact that that's his persuasion model. And yet the intellectual dark web has largely been defined by a kind of hyper rationalism that is very condescending to like emotional appeals or the role of emotions in argument, essentially. So it's I would I would argue that uh, a lot of the folks who praise height have missed sort of that key point that he seems to be making in Righteous Minds. What do you think? Well, yeah, I would agree with you rhetorically that a lot of the members of the intellectual dark world will disparage the need for uh, the, like the, you know, the kind of the famous Ben Shapiro facts don't care about your feelings quote, right. Is, is kind mm-hmm. of uh, paradigmatic for the group, but, but in their actual interactions, they are very much focused on the need for civility and for this to be mm-hmm. a core defining feature that the way they present themselves is being able to have, you know, and, and Sam Harris at one point was kind of branding his podcast like this, able to have difficult conversations and controversial, discuss controversial topics, but while being civil and polite. And uh, I know you've talked with other uh, guests about the concept of civility porn. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, I would say in that respect, that kind of accords with Hyde's point, right? That mm. you, you need to, especially with some of the, some of the central figures like the Weinsteins, they seem very bad at dealing with criticism where it isn't first introduced with, you know, kind of massaging the ego and, mm-hmm. and kind of. Mm-hmm introducing how much you actually agree on. There's like a a range of disagreement that is acceptable, but you, if you go beyond that, you're into the realm of, you know, bad faith actor who shouldn't be interacted with. So, so all of which is to mm-hmm. say, I think you're right that uh, height in a lot of ways is an outlier and his approach may be different than many of the other people in the intellectual dark web. But I, but I think the focus on uh, 
civility at least kind of accords with that mm-hmm. notion. I, I certainly agree. And, um, you know, I think there are like, I, here's what I would say. I feel like the intellectual dark web tends to be in favor of this idea, except in application with regard to the feelings of social justice warriors, right? <laughs> that they have sort of a persuasive blind. And, and like people like James Lindsay will say quite explicitly, they think it's not even worth trying to argue with SJWs, but like other ones I feel like are just not sort of interested in validating or sort of trying to understand those feelings on that side of the spectrum, the way that they are strongly in favor of understanding the feelings of people in the center and right. Um, And I want to mention, since you mentioned Steven Pinker, who I think also is like on the periphery, but is is in some ways connected. So as I was checking through his feed, um, which I can still see actually, because he didn't block me when he was blocking everybody (laughs) who had mentioned his connection to Epstein. um, He is mostly just doing some like climate change activism. I saw some promotion of um, John McWhorter, uh, which is another individual who could arguably be included now within the intellectual dark web. Uh, and then an article defending Jordan Peterson. So it's like, you know, he's not he's not as deep into the shtick as other people, but there is still a kind of ready, easy to find um, interaction between the people in that are attached to this group that are sort of self-promoting and also reinforcing this narrative that they're all constantly under attack. Yeah, and I think the way maybe a distinction I would draw is that there are people for whom there's they they agree with the kind of a significant portion of the criticisms about overreactions on the far left to figures like Jordan Peterson or that right the kind of and I think mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. also makes them prone to accepting the way that free speech arguments are framed, like the Noah Carl controversy, right? The uh, Cambridge Mm -hmm. scholar who was removed um, after a kind of campaign highlighting some of his less savory work and connections. Um, You know, Steven Pinker and a bunch of other people came out in response for freedom of speech kind of values. And I I think they're genuine about that, but I don't think they look particularly deeply into the topics before, you know, re- reaching a response. They've they've I think a lot of them have been this like targeted at some points for mm-hmm. criticism mm-hmm. that they've considered unfair. And so they react when they see someone else being targeted, they they assume that the criticism is equally, you know, unfair, unfair and it's a, an outrage campaign. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Th- and I think you see that you see that sort of most clearly in the case of Sam Harris and Charles Murray, where Harris has Murray on and basically says, you know, I see myself in you having been criticized in similar kinds of ways. And then Harris goes on Ezra Klein and sort of reveals how little he understands or knows about what is actually going on with Charles Murray's, um, you know, body of work. Yes, that uh, the Ezra Klein episode with Sam Harris, I think, was very eye opening for a lot of people um, Mm -hmm. in showing Mm -hmm. the limitations of his perspective. But although if you look at his fans reactions, it's kind of very polarized between people that think that Ezra Klein just had no point whatsoever in any of the points he raised and the people, um, you know, who who think the opposite. Um, But one of the points you made, Aaron, before was that, you know, they don't 
a significant amount of figures in the IDW don't seem to extend charity towards the position of social justice inclined people. And I think that shows up in uh, the way that things like mind reading accusations are applied, right? That mm-hmm. I've actually heard podcasts, <laughs> IDW content, where people will lament the propensity for mind reading in their opponents for you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then they'll launch into an extended hour-long discussion of how the social justice warriors are really motivated by the, uh, their own kind of insecurities and inadequacies. And they may not even believe what they're mm-hmm. promoting. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. At, and at no point do people you know, raise the, the kind of inherent contradiction there that they they are happily engaged in mind reading. So I I heard James Lindsay on a podcast, his podcast series, describe how good we cannot, you should not extend good faith to those in the social justice sphere because they will weaponize mm-hmm. it against you. Like yep. that. Yep. It, He's such a well poisoner. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not even, I mean, he, he in some cases now I think is the most, uh, kind of explicit in that kind in that response, mm-hmm. but I mean, he was openly saying, you know, yes, it's good to normally extend good faith in debates, but with social justice people, that's just a Trojan horse, um, and we we can't afford it. So, so there is mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. double standards, um, and and maybe the last thing about you know height and Pinker and Co is that I I think to some extent. The people who's who have not made their core identity or come to fame through being heterodox uh, IDW types, right? They they didn't come to fame through some cancelling issue or uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think to some extent they're a little bit immune from the worst excesses because their identity isn't so bound up in that group. So I think we've seen a real divide emerge in the election period where the people mm-hmm. who kind of went in on, you know, at, at the very least being very sympathetic to Trump and the dangers of a Biden administration because of the influence of wokeism. And, and in the post-election period, the people who are endorsing, you know, ballot voting uh, conspiracies as genuine important mm-hmm. concerns that that we just need to investigate versus those who recognize that that is largely a completely telegraphed tech uh you know insincere effort by the trump administration to undermine the election result so that that divide to me yeah. is like became very very clear in the pre-election and more so in the post-election period that there is divisions within the the members and Pinker and Height and those kind of people seem to fall on the side of recognizing, uh, you know, the threat of Trump. Like Pinker released a video of him doing a mm-hmm, quite embarrassing mm-hmm. dance to celebrate his loss. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually really want to talk about this divide because this this sort of schisming is what motivated me to want to have this particular conversation because it did center around this episode that Sam Harris put out where he and I actually want to I'm going to quote directly from the wiki which describes this and I want to talk about the wording of this wiki it says Sam Harris in November 2020 as a result of some unidentified members of the group 
meaning the intellectual dark web, extending the principle of charity to President Trump's claims that the 2020 United States presidential election was stolen through massive voter fraud, said he wished to turn in his imagine and it's a direct quote, imaginary membership <laughs> card to this imaginary organization <laughs> because some members of the group were sounding and I quote bonkers. <laughs> Um, now, I, I just want to note there, that is clearly something that was heavily contested in the wiki writing room, because someone pro-intellectual dark web put in that first sentence about the principle of charity. That is absolutely a Weinsteinism yeah, kind of I, way Yeah, it may have been written by this. one of the brothers. I, you know, <laughs> no, they, really? At least uh, they've, they certainly have influenced the tone of uh, that response. It's so funny. And like, it's, you know, the more accurate reading is Sam looked at folks like James Lindsay or um, Majid Nawaz. Um, yeah, we can talk about all of them in a second and was like, yeah, I'm not with <laughs> this, like going all in on the conspiracy theory thing, guys. And I think that was like, you know, I don't, I have lots of criticisms of Sam Harris, but like, it's certainly nice to see him and a couple of the other folks who I would say are, if, if you were going to label anyone in this group as being sort of genuinely liberal rather than like libertarians who call themselves classical liberals, for example, <laughs> yeah. um, I would put those folks in the actual genuine liberal camp. So I think it's very interesting to note that like the fracturing is happening along kind of political lines in that way. Yeah. And it will be interesting to me if they're able to, you know, kind of repair those lines, as I suspect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, efforts will be going on behind the scenes to reach out via DMs and telephone calls and so on to plaster over some of these uh, disagreements. But but yes, I I think one that wiki is is quite amazing. <laughs> In the, in the way <laughs> it's written. Is that Wikipedia? It's on? That's directly from Wikipedia, yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, I I will say in Sam's credit, I when I saw that he had, you know, kind of released that episode and that this was the topic, I was expecting a much more hesitant, indirect, you know, uh, like extending a lot of charity the, to the, the alternative positions, but... He was very direct and forceful in his critique, and he, he definitely is one the one of the people that has you know repeatedly said he's not really invested in this IDW term and whatnot. But I mm -hmm. I still think it is noticeable because Sam has a strong reticence to issue criticisms of people that he you know gets on well with personally. It. It mm -hmm. notably took him years to distance himself in any way from Ruben. Um, and and mm -hmm. even this isn't someone that he's interacted with a lot, but it I think it's it spoke volumes to me that he he mentioned at one point a couple of years ago that one of his most requested guests, I think it was around about the time he interviewed Jordan Peterson, was Stefan Molyneux. Now now, Stefan mm -hmm, Molyneux is mm -hmm. a, you know, boogeyman figure that everybody recognizes as, like, fairly racist, misogynist, um, very well, solid. Let's not say everybody. That's, no. that's <laughs> a broad category. But, I mean, he's he's been removed from Twitter, and I think if he's somebody that you mm -hmm. reference, people would say, well, of course, you know, Stefan Molyneux isn't the kind of person that we would, you know, regard as a, a reasonable actor. But I would point out that it, 
Sam for very many years was basically mm. uh, stating that he couldn't he couldn't express an opinion on that on whether Stephen Molyneux was good or bad because he's heard some bad things, but he's heard bad things about himself, so he doesn't want the judge and. And it, that would be fine, you know, everyone's busy and you don't have time to look into uh, everybody that crosses your path. But if your audience, if this is like the second most requested guest, and he talked about him on multiple occasions, I, from my perspective, it be, behooves you to spend an evening looking into the content and, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. developing an opinion on it. So the fact that Sam Harris was willing to publicly take a critical stance on the IDW in the wake of it. I, I think it's uncharacteristic for him. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think we can likewise give some credit at least to folks like Pinker and um, uh, Helen Pluckrose who wrote sort of letters before the election being like, we're strongly for Trump and we think it's wrong to vote for Trump just to spite the social justice warrior types. Now, they were not willing to sort of specifically call out individuals. And again, I think it sounds like Sam sort of also sort of skirted that um, as well. But at least there there has been some tension, genuine tension, it seems like, over these issues. Um, but I want to talk about another way we could talk about one of the subclusters within this, which is the folks whose job is to kind of mostly be um, interviewers and like they have served as the conduits, the like uh, the meeting points for a lot of this stuff. So yes. there was, I mean, Sam Harris's show to some extent has been a, a place like that, but the other two are Rogan and Ruben here. Yeah. Really, it seems to me. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about where they're at at this point, because I know a lot of folks are tend to still be pro Rogan. And I just don't understand how, after having Alex Jones on again, there is so much goodwill because Alex Jones is really a disaster. And like Ruben, Rogan, sorry, Rogan did not do a good job sort of dealing with him and having him like, there's one thing to be said for like, I'm going to debate, you know, uh, Alex Jones and like undercut all of his arguments and stuff. But like, uh, I, I would highly recommend actually that folks check out um, Knowledge Fights breakdown of the Rogan Alex Jones episode rather than actually listening to the episode because you really get a sense of like why this is actually genuinely harmful to be platforming Alex Jones in this kind of way. Yeah. What do you think about Rogan at this point? So I think that uh, I think I can explain to some extent the viewpoint of people who don't have an issue with that. And it's that one, they don't see Alex Jones. They typically don't see Alex Jones as a very nefarious character. They regard him rather as a, you know, humorous conspiracy theorist who everybody regards as ridiculous. So having him on, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's more funny than it is, you know, that he's going to spread and misinformation. And maybe they also share the point that Rogan uh, repeatedly editorializes when Alex appears that even though he's throwing out a lot of things and some of the things are crazy that he gets a surprising amount right and he's sometimes ahead of the curve and he knows uh, he has an encyclopedic knowledge about things so I think that that's that's one of the reasons that people don't react negatively and then the other is that uh, in this recent appearance Joe made a quite strong show of, as he framed it, constantly fact-checking all the claims that Alex made, right? Which, as Knowledge Fight covers, 
typically just amounted to Googling and checking if a document existed. And then, you know, if it roughly accorded with the topic saying, well, I guess there's something to it. And it, he, you know, he did push back more forcefully on some of the climate change uh, claims. Uh, but, but so I think that for some people, while you and I would see that as, like I said, a complete pantomime of critically fact-checking mm -hmm. someone, they would regard that as an honest effort and say, you know, Joe isn't a a journalist or he isn't, uh, you know, a scientist. So he's just doing the best that he can with his resources. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that uh, Rogan... And when I hear a lot of people talking about Rogan, they're pointing out that he has on a wide variety of guests and that he has an open mind to the you know whatever the guest is bringing so people complaining about him platforming right wing or idw types are missing the fact that he'll have on left-wing people or scientists or uh or you know just comedians and so on so the the argument mm -hmm. is that the only people who want to censor the guests are the left right the right doesn't care when he has a far left person on yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree that is the argument that folks will generally make, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm sympathetic to it, but I, I would say at least that, like, you know, it's difficult to tag Rogan, broadly speaking, because he does sort of just kind of go along, not, not, not as much as Ruben does, for sure, but, like, I think there's also a fair critique to be raised by folks who've watched a lot of Rogan, which is not me, um, that he is primarily more sympathetic to right-wing conspiracies oh, and like is fa fairly willing to like go all you know like slide into a right-wing conspiracy much more easily it seems like uh than he is when he's talking to sort of left-wing guests yes definitely uh so just to be clear i 100 percent would agree that joe himself like that argument i presented is the one that people made mm -hmm. but i would see joe as as you just described, certainly much more sympathetic to right-wing conspiracism. And mm. he himself, in general, to be not a empty vessel that's willing to hear all sides, but somebody who is prone to lean towards conspiracism um, and reactionary mm -hmm. kind of responses. And I definitely don't think it's the case that he's as open to left and right-wing uh, kind of outrage, for example. So I think... Mm -hmm. The issue is that, you know, a bit like Ruben, that Joe, in some respects, is was raised liberal, is socially liberal in, you know, values about gay marriage and this kind of thing, which, you know, has become something of a trope. But that they would... So he, it's easy for people to say that anybody trying to classify him as right wing is making a category error. But... I think if you listen to a lot of Joe's content, and I listen to a fair amount, um, except with guests I dislike, um, or, or, or more actually guests I find extremely boring, but the that he he isn't this neutral person kind of not who doesn't like talking about politics and culture war topics. He prompts people constantly to bring up the culture war issues mm -hmm. and it's and he has a bunch of narratives that he he promotes kind of week in and week out and they they tend to fall reliably towards the you know idw side 
Um, and he'll cite mm-hmm. like, you know, Brett Weinstein on the coronavirus or, or various thinkers from there, that side. So he, I think people are wrong when they issue a defense that he he's really a neutral, you know, just an interviewer without advocating for any perspective, just having lots of ideas. He he has narratives mm-hmm. and he has sympathies that tend to flow in one direction. But it is true, like if he has a far left or not even far left, but like someone like David Pakman or whatever on, he tends to mm-hmm. mirror the guest. And this happens with scientists as well. So if he has a coronavirus uh, guest on like, some mainstream scientists to talk about vaccines or whatever, he he will, you know, raise conspiracy points, but he tends to be quite slightly deferential towards them and kind of agree with, you know, more points that they're making. But then if the next week he has somebody on who's, you know, advocating coronavirus conspiracies, he's much less willing to push back only kind of half-heartedly in the same way he was with Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've seen, so I was looking around on on his Twitter stuff, and like, while there isn't the level of conspiracy theory that I found on some other people's pages, there is sort of a consistent theme of the Dems being sort of inconsistent or extreme in their lockdown approaches, as well as sort of like leaning towards like vitamin D and alternative (laughs) sort of ways to cope with or deal with um, getting COVID. And like, these are, this is a reoccurring theme I found on almost every one of not, not necessarily, I would say, 80% of the timelines that I looked at related to the intellectual dark web had some degree of criticism for the Dems with regard to how they are handling COVID. One of the lamest versions of this being the next person I want to talk about, which was Dave Rubin, who was not only at a open LA protest, not wearing a mask, um, but also was like posting pictures of cuts of meat, like giant pieces of meat being like, no, this is totally for two people. I'm definitely not having an illegal party or something like that at my house, like desperately, desperately trying to get canceled kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there's, there, there is something to like a lot of these folks come to this from a victim place. A lot of them want to come to it from a victim place. There's this kind of cancel subculture where they just like really desperately want to be dominated by society canceling them they're so very thirsty for it and Ruben like with his you know burn you know please desperately burn my book um, is, is amongst the worst of these um, I don't know what do you do you feel like there's much to be said about Ruben at this point I feel like he's even discredited within his own crowd I like the yeah I feel he is now widely regarded as you know openly partisan um, but but I will say it took people a number of years of him being openly partisan to get there. Like even when he joined mm-hmm. the Blaze, which is a, you know, a clearly right wing network, he he still had people who were, you know, claiming that, well, he's he's not he's not really, you know, right wing. He's just uh yeah, he's just gets more of a hearing there. But um it's it, so the psychoanalytic analysis that they want to be dominated I like that idea, although I'm not sure I'm entirely on board with a, uh, with the, the kind of Freudian approach. But I will say that uh, <laughs> on, a, on a Brett Weinstein interview, I can't remember who it was with now, but he, and maybe it was Rogan. It might have actually been Rogan. Um, 
I think mm -hmm. he posited that one of the defining features of membership within the intellectual dark world or the kind of heterodox world he inhabits is that you have to have been through a trial by fire where, where you mm -hmm. are publicly tested in your commitment to freedom of speech. So, you know, obviously for him, it's the never end, the, the event which never fails to get mentioned, the evergreen, uh, you know. Oh, evergreen. Yeah, I have you heard, heard of that, heard of that, that a, small is event? That a so, thing? Is that a, yeah, it's he, college, right? That's his trial by fire, right? And we find out uh, in another interview he did with his brother that he regards his PhD uh, research being uh, co-opted mm, or right. uh, silenced as another example of that that happened years before. But uh, he suggested that this was kind of an initiation that allowed people to demonstrate their commitment. And, you know, as a researcher, I'm somebody that uh, works on ritual cognition. And it, this was really interesting to me because it's mm -hmm. it, it comes across as like a dysphoric initiation ritual, right? Which is yep, necessary sure. in order to bind you into the group. And definitely something James some Lindsay talks about when he oh. calls everyone a cultist. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. yeah. But, you know, some of the uh, points you made previously about Sam Harris and how he has a lot of sympathy for Charles Murray or anybody who's, you know, gone through a public shaming that he regards as, you know, in some respect, it isn't entirely clear it matters if it's illegitimate. It's just, you know, the level of vitriol involved. And it's definitely mm -hmm. the case that he and other figures extend a lot of sympathy and generosity to anybody that they see being targeted by that, especially, you know, if it's being targeted by the uh, far left or woke. So I, I definitely think there's something to it that like Brett actually had his mm -hmm. finger on it, that this was a... Uh, like, you know, a green beard in evolutionary theory that they use as a marker for people that can be admitted into the club. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, just, to, just to sort of reinforce that, I actually wanted to, David Rubin's pinned tweet, um, I think really conveys sort of the mindset here. He says, putting political views aside, of course, I pretty much always find conservatives to be friendlier, happier, more authentic, and open than lefties. Agree, disagree, prove my point with your response. Which I just think is a perfect Kafka trap, right? Because, like, of course every conservative is going to happily agree and every liberal is going to be angry and that will reinforce his mindset. But I feel like you just see a lot of that where... They've just gotten into this confirmation bias place where they've had some, I mean, like some of them have had legitimately bad experiences with people on the left and they've created sort of a narrative that those are the real danger in the world because of those yes. grievance experiences. Um, and that's why they are justified in spending all of their time talking about those people. Yeah. And the, so Eric Weinstein was recently saying something similar uh, in a tweet mm -hmm. about, you know, that he is Mr. Incon himself. <laughs> yeah. So indeed. And he was saying, you know, that he gets invitations to speak to people like Tucker Carlson, but he's never invited by MSNBC or, you know, Rachel Maddow, or the, those kind of people. And the and in his interview with Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz also expressed quite, you know, surprise that 
he didn't find much that they disagreed on um, ideologically. Mm. And uh, surprising, yeah, it was. So it was surprising. very shocking. Um, but but that's the thing. There's there's very little, and this is this is part of my like overall main criticism of IDW types is there's a remarkable lack of self-awareness about, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to spend time criticizing the left and the Biden administration and the far left and uh, woke social justice types, of course you will get a more receptive audience on the right. Like, it, it, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. what you won't get a receptive audience for is if you want to criticize immigration restrictions and, uh, you know, the coronavirus denialism or conspiracies or or kind of mm -hmm. real against voter fraud uh, conspiracies that they're not legitimate. If you start talking about those things, I think you'll find that your invitations will not be so forthcoming. So, yeah, it always mm -hmm. just strikes me as uh, remarkable that people make this point about you know being welcomed by figures on the right and it's largely because they're saying nothing mm -hmm. that challenges people on the right yeah let's talk about what you consider to be the new power core what we could say the the house uh house lannister of the intellectual dark web which is the weinsteins and and heather haying who is uh brett's wife i yes. believe correct Yes. Right. So let's let's talk about Heather, who I think a lot of folks are not familiar with, because I think she really drives home the point you're making. Um, she is, as I can, as as far as I can tell, it's very sympathetic to the kind of generously put gender critical group, or as some would refer to them as TERFs, right? Um, and so, for example, two tweets that I found from her, one was promoting an episode with Brett that was coming out, uh, their show, The Evolutionary Lens. And she says, today on The Evolutionary Lens, and it's a list of questions, did women hunt big game in pre-Columbian America? Does how you say something change whether it's true? Is people's generosity being used to fund criminals? Do these questions make us far right? Mm. That's the problem, and it's just like it's it's always this kind of like have have I have I triggered you with my far right questions now? Have I you know has my decoupling upset you too much? <laughs> yes. Um, and and then. You know, and then just the second one that I'll add, and I'll get your thoughts on Heather, since I know you've listened, you've actually listened to her on some of their podcasts. There's another one where she cites Deborah So, who is someone who is um, listed as part of the IDW. I had never heard of this person or, or like studied this person at all much until I was reading up on this. Um, and said, uh, what I found was Heather had retweeted Deborah saying, a woman can wear men's clothing and still be a woman. Uh, this was in response, I believe, to the Elliot Page announcement. Mm. Um, and Heather quotes this tweet and says, In 1950, this was a progressive idea, a feminist idea. In 2020, it's taken by some as transphobic, an epithet that is often code for your reality is no good here. Now, let me, I'm going to ask you, do you feel like a woman can wear men's clothing and still be a woman is a controversial view that would trigger the libs? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely intended to, right, the the framing mm -hmm. of it. And Deborah So is I, someone I've heard mostly on Rogan appearances, kind of emphasizing the point that you made. Um, and she also, mm -hmm. I think she co-hosts or occasionally co-host the Quillette 
podcast, which I also have listened to. Um, but I, I will say that there's, you know, I think within that, that whole sphere, the kind of gender critical sphere as it exists, uh, there's people who within there that I would consider to be good fear factors. People like Helen Lewis, for example, uh, previously mm -hmm. at New Statesman and now at uh, Atlantic, I think. Um, but who who are you know controversial figures or you know the earlier feminist Jermaine Greer has has had troubles um, and so on. But I I think the the IDW sphere approach to the issue tends to be a lot more. I don't I don't want to say it's insincere because I think for like people like Deborah So, it's probably one of the main issues that they talk about. But it, it does rely mm -hmm. a lot more on the kind of tropes that you're highlighting, which, you know, are making provocative statements and saying, you know, is this triggering you? This used to be like fine to say and or, you know, misgendering people uh, mm -hmm. at the worst. I mean, maybe this is not a fair person to come to compare because I don't think the majority of the IDW people would do it. But, you know, when Candice Owens did that interview, I think, with mm -hmm. Blair Embry um, and continued to use like male pronouns for her. Right. Mm -hmm. That was obviously to get a rise. And I mean, I'm I wouldn't go so far as to say Heller is just doing that because I've actually listened to that episode that, you know, the one that you mm -hmm. were quoting the first one from. And a lot of those mm -hmm. questions are framed around this one article about, yeah, women and big game hunting. And then uh, this article, which labeled them in the far right and their reactions to it. Um, but, but it, yeah, I, I don't know the, the, the topic and the mm -hmm. beat, around issues around trans issues are like really big in the intellectual dark web as a you know forbidden topic but it it certainly comes up a lot for a topic that's forbidden <laughs> yeah and i mean i think it what it really is is that it's a, a key example for them of science and expertise being corrupted by liberal social justice ideology in this kind of way and so like it keys into all of their you know what are the experts actually doing to these people and can you really trust this and maybe it's actually a fad or yeah. something like that um and so yeah i know we're, we're starting to run a little short on time and i want to talk about the conspiracy strain of all of this we've mentioned it in various points along here but i want to specifically highlight a couple of cases where I think it really is sort of you know, dangerous insofar as speech can be dangerous, right? So we're talking about Eric, um, and like as funny as it is to make jokes about you know um, involuntary um, conservatives and stuff like that, right? On his actual timeline, there's there's a lot of criticism of COVID strategies, and then there's things like I saw a tweet about an FBI assassination in Chicago that has been sort of revealed recently as being an FBI assassination, and his description of it is, you know, the idea that the U.S. is incapable of unthinkable conspiracy is madness. And it's this sort of 
you know, using actual conspiracies that have happened. And I've, I just actually was talking about this over on Philosophers in Space about sort of the way that conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists like to point to genuine conspiracies that happened as a way to then jump to saying, so you shouldn't be confident about anything, essentially, which like opens the slide into all of these other kind of conspiracy theories. Once you have a they, you can believe that the they are keeping any amount of information from folks. Have you found that to be sort of a reoccurring theme when you all have been doing the guru stuff? Yes, definitely. The and uh, in in the case of Eric in particular, he's probably one of the worst offenders when it comes to you know promoting conspiracism. But it's a it's a hotly contested field in the post election mm -hmm. era. Uh, we, Majid Nawaz is giving him a run for his money when it comes to yeah. uh, election conspiracies, but. Specifically on Eric, I, I think he he released a podcast uh, about half a year, maybe uh, so ago. What he discussing what he called as responsible conspiracy theorizing, and mm -hmm. and it, a lot of it relied on this point that you just brought up about you know highlight that there are actual conspiracies that have happened, and then say you know so you think conspiracies aren't real? Like you know are you are you historically literate? Like, look at all these examples from history. And the thing that kind of upsets me about that is I've heard Alex Jones do that exact same stick. And mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. me and David Icke, all conspiracy theorists do that, as you noted, right? They they can rattle mm -hmm. off conspiracies that actually exist, and they use that to then uh, infer that the conspiracy that they are suggesting is not that. Uh, out there but but the issue is that almost in almost all cases there it is out there and there isn't good evidence for the claim that they want to make it's the same thing as you know it, mm -hmm. it reminds me of the galileo gambit where people will right. point to some yeah that they have some theory which is being dismissed by the mainstream this also applies to eric right who believes uh mm -hmm. he his brother and uh his wife are all have had Nobel Prize winning ideas kind of repressed by the institutions and powers that be. So in, in this case, the the Galileo gambit that Galileo existed and he was right and was kind of, you know, suppressed by authorities. So those figures exist and ignoring the, you know, the complete prevalence of uh, how many crackpots to to Galileo ratio exist. And uh, mm -hmm. right. Eric, Eric, is someone who has endorsed like huge conspiracies and who even on the best of occasions will will kind of frame things in conspiratorial tones so mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to pin down what he's specifically arguing for because he's good at making statements that are obscurantist or which give him you know this thing which conspiracy theorists tend if you're a good conspiracy theorist you're adding caveats right where you say no i mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. might be wrong or this kind of thing then when people pointed out say no look they he said there he might be wrong even if you've spent hours on the topic but uh, eric uh yeah that like he for me he's very interesting because i think it represents something of a new strain of conspiracy theorists, which is more, hmm. maybe more palatable to a more mainstream audience because it comes across as more erudite and 
and more grounded in science less you know on the fringe at like alternative medicine conferences or that kind of thing and for mm -hmm. that reason i and, and it tends to revolve around politics so for that reason i'm very interested in this massive strain of conspiratorial thinking which runs through the idw and it probably fits in with the the feeling that you that we've talked about like kind of repeatedly about feeling persecuted by the mainstream or shut out right and that mm -hmm. the you're not allowed to bring up certain topics or the the there's a danger of cancelling and so on so the this notion that the mainstream sources of information are illegitimate is i think it's a huge part in the idw and part of the reason i think it's yeah. uh worthy of criticism because i i i think a lot of their audience are people who are genuinely interested in science genuinely uh kind of engaged in want to engage in you know critical thought about politics and to me it feels a bit like they provide uh junk food and bad heuristics that you know and, and then access mm -hmm. to more thinkers who provide more bad heuristics and more uh like examples to feed that so so yeah it's like mm -hmm. a kind of self-fulfilling and i don't completely buy the like extreme radicalization theories but i but i think it definitely is the case that you can get lost on a like idw rabbit hole yeah let me let me cite a couple other examples i know we're running really short on time here but given that you said that like this is a deep strain i, I really want to support you here with some evidence so for example we talked about um nawaz who i want to mention my entire experience ever with majad nawaz was i saw him after the election retweeting a very unreliable far-right source claiming there was election fraud i retweeted a criticism of that saying that it seems like an unreliable source and probably shouldn't be retweeting it and he blocked me immediately it was i think the only person on this list um, besides Helen Pluckrose, who has blocked me at this point. Um, but I was, you know, of course, still able to to look at his feed. And what I found was he's still citing conspiracy theories. He's posting videos from Team Trump, which are, quote unquote, videos of suitcases filled with ballots. And, and again, your description of them as couching these things always in plausibly deniable terms is absolutely right. So his description was, I see what this looks like and I hope I'm wrong. Mm. Right. And the the really frustrating part is there's no there's zero chance he's ever going to circle back around and like acknowledge that this turned out not to be what it what he thinks it looks like and there's so many of these videos running around and they've all been discredited that it's just like it's absurd to play it that way and another one i wanted to mention we haven't talked much about douglas murray but i do think he is in many ways associate he sort of represents the uh the british arm of the intellectual dark web and he had an article out that he was promoting uh this was um him talking about china and the and the coronavirus and this is one that I know you've heard from folks like Eric as well, the idea that it was deliberate. So here's a quote that he cited from his own article, right? He says, um, is it a conspiracy theory to believe this could have been deliberate? I wouldn't have said so, and nor do many people in the intelligence world. Zero citation provided. 
In 2020, China achieved one of the greatest coups in financial history. The effect on the Trump administration's trade war, or sorry, the effect of the Trump administration's trade war against China was beginning to be felt. Sure it was. And by accident or design, the CCP found itself in the lucky position of their main competitor's economy, like the rest of the world, having to shut down completely. As a bonus, the president, who appeared to be the only person in the world willing to take on the CCP, was taken out in the election which followed. Now, as the American public survey a political and financial mess of gigantic proportions, China is happily sailing into 2021 with increased growth. So there's just that kind of reoccurring theme of like, is it really a conspiracy to suggest that a bunch of people came together and caused massive, massive amounts of harm for this political gain in this kind of way? I mean, yeah. Are there any other examples that you've come across recently that you feel like really drive this point home? There's an endless amount of examples. (laughs) But I, I think that, you know, the... I, it has to connect in so, to some extent to the desire. Like, I mean, you know, Jordan Peterson, a whole bunch of people, uh, James, uh, Jordan Peterson was focusing on postmodern neo-Marxists, right? And their conspiracies mm-hmm. to take over the academia and media worlds. And James Lindsay has a similar concern about, you know, the, the woke infiltrating institutions and taking over society. So, it isn't a massive leap from those kind of concerns to to general conspiracism. And I think coupled with this tendency in the intellectual dark world, like I think heterodox thinking, you know, thinking where you're kind of critical of whatever is mainstream has value to some extent. But there's a danger when it's so reactive that whatever is mainstream, you know, or or whatever is a kind of an accepted consensus is is immediately taken to have some you know issue or something mm-hmm. lacking and mm-hmm. that veers into what what i've termed science hipsterism right like this mm-hmm. desire that mm-hmm. if you believe in global warming it's not because of the ipcc reports or because of the uh like you know the scientific consensus it's because of very specific evidence that other people haven't heard about the yaml creators this is like brett's reasoning um, sure. so the, I think those two tendencies tend to make, you know, people prone to hot takes and to endorsing conspiratorial thought and to bring it back mm-hmm. to the Douglas Murray quote that you highlighted, I think Douglas mm-hmm. Murray and that kind of, that kind of argument is a really good example of, you know, where the blind spots are because the amount of mm-hmm. people in the IDW sphere, including the fans who would recognize that as a promoting of a conspiracy theory, I think is, is quite low because of the way it's couched as, you know, a possibility. So the fact that it's presented as a possibility yeah. means it's not, it's not being presented as definitely true. Therefore, you know, what's, what's the problem with presenting it and the mm-hmm. inability to deal with things like Douglas Murray recently did a tour of kind of Brett's podcast, Eric's podcast. I think he was on Rogan. He he was on like a whole ton of them. And none of them ever pull him on like when he's talking about, you know, trends in media or that kind of thing. He he acts as if the kind of right wing media, 
doesn't have narratives, mm -hmm. doesn't have, you know, things which it doesn't present. And if the right wing media is emphasized, it's just kind of in passing as it's, you know, people criticize Fox, but it's not as bad as, you know, insert whatever, The Guardian or so on. And and that to me speaks to the fact that, like, there's there's a real skew in the conspiracy, mm -hmm. the conspiracies. They are not endorsing left wing or uh, left leaning conspiracies generally. And coronavirus right. stuff seems to have been a kind of uh, lightning rod that attracts people, you know, uh, to to these. I, I think on one hand, it's actually been very useful to illustrate who is conspiracy mm -hmm. prone and, you know, how critically yeah, totally they look agree. at sources. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, now, we're really, we're really short on time. I want to mention we haven't talked about so many people, but there's like folks, um, you know, Paul Joseph Watson, Tim Poole. I actually wanted to mention just one more piece of evidence for like this is a real thing. If anybody, you know, like believes that algorithms effectively track clusters in this kind of way, then go to any of these people's Twitter feeds and click on the similar to. So, for example, I've got Christina Hoff Summers up um, and under similar to Christina Hoff Summers, I have Blair White, Coleman Hughes, who's another one I think we could talk about is like new to the crowd. Uh, Tim Poole, Barry Weiss, Laura Chen, Lauren Southern, Andrew Sullivan, uh, Douglas Murray, Quillet, Sam Harris, right? So it, it, every one of them, if you click on them, you will get these same clusters of people. So the algorithm knows that the intellectual dark web exists, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that is you know, a valuable piece of information, especially we didn't get to talk about Brett and his, there was a, a, a paper that came out about far-right echo chambers and the way that you two algorithms um, impact them. But I think that is really interesting stuff for folks to look at. Is there any like final points you want to make before we get, I take you into the enlightening round here? Uh, well, I would just say that, you know, from the list of figures, the one who's always seemed odd to include for me is Ben Shapiro, because he, hmm. he always just struck me as like a open right wing partisan. I mean, he, he previously worked at mm -hmm. uh, Breitbart right and so the, the, i know that there are other people on on with it linked to the group who kind of lean right but i never i never he was always given as the exception but to me he just seemed like an odd person to be included and i think it was just because he uh you know attended some debates with like jordan peterson and sam harris um so yeah exactly so that's the that's you know in terms of the original list and all that kind of thing he's the only figure i would highlight as an odd fit that you won't find cropping up in al maybe you would find him in algorithm you know searches but mm -hmm. i i think it's fine for to just ignore him um when you're talking about the characteristics fair enough yeah i think that's a good point all right, so there's so much more we could do, but I got to cut it off there because I got to torture you. So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You do not get to hedge. You don't get to define your terms. You don't get to explain yourself. Are you ready? I hate this. Yes. <laughs> I know. Let's do it. All right. So first of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what is real. Real or not real? The external world. Yes. Colors. 
Yes. <laughs> Phenomenal consciousness? Uh, yes. <laughs> Free will? Uh, yes. Mm. Selves? No. Genders? Uh, no. <laughs> Races? No. <laughs> Species? Y- uh, yes. <laughs> Morality? Uh, yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? No. <laughs> Gods? No. Or God? Mm-hmm. Society? Mm, no. <laughs> Money? No. Numbers? Uh, n- n- no. <laughs> <laughs> Fictional characters? No. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Yeah. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. So much fear in your voice. Science? Uh, yes. <laughs> Natural laws? No. Beauty? Uh, no. Love? Mm, no. Causality? Yes. And finally, time. Yes. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? I I genuinely dislike that. <laughs> so very painful. You, you knew it was coming too. Was it? Did it help at all to know that it was coming, or was it somehow worse? It made it worse because I like could anticipate the. You know, I know some of the ones that I don't like, and yet they still surprise me. <laughs> As they came. So, Were your yeah. answers what you expected them to be? Did you have any sense of what your answers would be going in? No, I find myself like, I think I I went through periods of like, I swift switched my definition in my head and then, you know, could answer semi-confidently, <laughs> but then switched it back and then, like my brain was saying, but you're contradicting the previous. So yeah, that's just upsetting. Ah, <laughs> uh, good. It's uh, so satisfying. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, my my void hump is filled for another week. Um, so, Chris, do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff? Oh yeah. Uh, so I have a podcast with uh, Matt Smith. Uh, oh, sorry, not Matt Smith. Matt Bryan. Cut that. <laughs> You'll be Matt. The uh, Decoding the Gurus podcast, where we look at folks from the intellectual dark web, but also further afield um, and completely out of that sphere and just look at the kind of rhetorical techniques and kind of persuasive uh, styles of argument that various people who are regarded as gurus use. So we have a we have a Twitter account which is Decoding the Gurus and I'm on Twitter and the C underscore Kavanaugh um, yeah, that's where I am online. Or if you care about academic stuff, I'm on, you know, Google Scholar. But my academic work is not uh, about the IDW. <laughs> 
fair enough. And I, I just want to—I I wanted to mention in all of these people's threads and things where they were all talking about free speech and caring about that, not one of them had mentioned Google's firing of the AI ethicist Gebru this past uh, week. So I just thought that was very fascinating. But anyway, that's just a, a chat for another time. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a lot of fun. Um, everyone, go check out Decoding the Guru. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you.